When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, In Search of the Acoustic Science of the Divine. Basically, if you want to see sound in pictorial form, you take a drum with you. And as my friend John Reed performed these experiments in the Great Pyramid about 25 years ago, he uh, actually used the sarcophagus in the King's Chamber as the drum. He put a speaker into that. And then he covered the whole thing with a membrane and scattered it with very, very fine dust. And then basically he threw the internal frequencies of the pyramid at that membrane. And what do we get? We get hieroglyphics. It was astonishing. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. David Elkington is here to explore the acoustic connections between the Earth, the human brain, and sacred spaces. David's an academic and historian specializing in Egyptology. He's best known perhaps for his work on the Jordan-led codices, the earliest known initiatory Christian documents, and he's the co-author of The Case for the Jordan Codices. He's lectured at Oxford and Cambridge universities and appeared on many TV programs, including Forbidden History. He's just released the second edition of The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound on the 20th anniversary of its first printing. Hey, David, welcome. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. It's great to be here on this podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. My pleasure. The first edition of the Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, that came out, what, about 20 years ago? Yeah, almost exactly 20 years ago. And uh, 
I got approached to uh, update and rewrite it, which um, the edition of 20 years ago was a very limited edition. Um, and so it was time to get it out there to a broader audience um, because in the meantime, I've been working on other, other actually more controversial projects. But uh, I thought that the publisher had done a really amazing job with it, actually. I've, I've chopped and changed a few things. I've taken away the initial first four chapters, which are no longer relevant. I've added a, a missing last chapter. And, of course, I've gotten some friends to write uh, some, some, some good yeah. emendations for it. And, of course, my great friend Robert Watts has written ah. a lovely forward, which yes. is great. I wanted to talk to you about the legendary movie producer Robert Watts, of course. Uh, he produced the, the Star Wars sequel, The Empire Stri Strikes Back, and... Uh, um, so I, I wanted to ask you about how that, that came about because uh, it sounds like almost like he reached out to you after reading reading the book and finding some interesting connections between uh, George Lucas's Jedi Knights and uh, the Jed, which of yes, course... Yes, it was yeah. really funny. It's funny you should have hit on that because uh, I uh, had a friend who uh, met Robert, oh gosh, about... 14, 15 years ago, and um, and he gave Robert a copy of my book. Uh, and uh, the next thing I know is that about sort of two or three weeks later, I get this extraordinary ecstatic call saying, uh, calling me Dave. I, now, I rarely allow anybody to call me Dave. Um, I'm, I'm sort of pretty formal about my name, and I wondered who the, who the dickens this was. And then, then the guy turned around and said, it's Robert Watts. I just read your book. Uh, and I thought immediately, okay, Dave's fine. I don't mind Dave. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we got talking about this, and he said, he said, hey, Dave, he said, we had no idea when we were making Star Wars that this whole idea of the Jedi Knights might actually be based on, on a kind of truth. He said, we were blown away when we actually saw the, the, the subchapter heading, Return of the Jed and I. And I, I, oddly enough, when I wrote that uh, that subtitle uh, a few years beforehand, I wryly had them in mind when I when I wrote it down because as, as in my first edition, I think also in this book, I've left some of the, the punning titles in there because I think they're fun mm. and it helps people to understand as well the way you play with words. That words are uh, they're, they're liquid. They're they're they're, they're wonderful. Um, things with which you can twist and bend meaning and you can create new words to express yourself in which if you're clever enough or, or if you're if you're a natural language people will, will understand immediately uh, and, and Robert got that big time and we were talking about the whole Ozirian Jed pillar and everything else and I said you know um, thinking about it because I hadn't actually given it much thought there is so much that is similar so the way the Jedi Knights have actually been portrayed that is actually there in the original Osirian cosmology. Well, let's, um, let's talk about uh, the, you know, the Jed pillar because people may, and it's yeah. spelled D-J-E-D in English, D-J-E-D, yeah. 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 Uh, that comes from, I guess, Osiris. So tell me, tell us about the, the Jed pillar and how that connects to the Jedi, Jedi Knights. Well, Osiris, of course, is a Greek translation of the Egyptian original. Um, originally, Osiris was called in the deep pre-dynastic period of Egypt, around about 3,500 BC and backwards. He was actually called Jedu or Jedi, which is really extraordinary. Mm. Now, what the Jed is, 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 a, is a pillar. And 
if atop the pillar we have kind of like four terraces where the where the greek columns have these stylized uh, capitals in the corinthian doric or ionian modes in egypt you just had these four layers that branch outwards in a kind of a semi-pyramidal shape before meeting the pillar which goes all the way down now it's a fascinating concept because if we look at the very first of the egyptian pyramids and probably the world's great breakthrough structure at the time, around about 3000 BC, we look at the step pyramid of, of King Djoser. If you look at the interior superstructure, you'll see that actually it has been constructed around a negative jed pillar. Negative in the sense that the jed pillar is constructed by the space created by the materials around it. And that's really curious because, of course, the pyramid itself is dedicated to that God, who is the God of resurrection. Mm. Now, interestingly, I believe, therefore, that um, myth, as it were, as in the myth of the Star Wars films, is a living, breathing entity that survives through history. It is not fantasy stories. It is not make-believe. It is real. And I think that fundamentally, it's a survival of ancient liturgies and and ancient spiritual practices. You'll note that I don't use the word religion. Um, religion, in modern terms, kind of gives you a sense of dogma, of doctrine. That was less so in the early Egyptian period. Um, and so what we have is this idea of the presence of the god in the pillar, now, recently I've been working on a, a new discovery called the Jordan-led codices. Yes. And on some of the ancient documents, which are, are, are the earliest known Christian documents, which we're just in the process of, of age dating, um, there are representations of pillars, and around them we have the names of various divinities or angels. This is a survival of a very, very ancient tradition that survives obviously in deep uh, archaic times from Egypt and elsewhere all over the planet. The God is somehow in the pillar. Now, if we then take ourselves across the waters to Australia, we have the uh, wonderful Aboriginal people who are uh, an amazing people. I have to say, I'm, I mean, actually in love with them. I think, I mean, awe of them as well. Um, they are, people who have suffered very greatly uh, due to colonialism. Um, and it's something that needs to be rectified because their traditions and their ways of perception, their ways of, of walking the landscape are something that the modern world could really do with more knowledge of. And their sacred instrument happens to be a pillar. It's called a didgeridoo. Right, right. Not very far from the word Jed in Egypt. Ah, interesting. You see, I, so I believe that what initially happened was that in the dreamtime state of the Aborigines, they would actually um, originally, if they still don't do it, sing or chant the name of their of their let's say their their divinities in the landscape, be it the the wombat, the kangaroo, the crocodile, whatever through that hollow pillar, and then it would resonate outwards. And it is a well-known fact that a didgeridoo played at somebody in a specific fashion, in a specific way, can help to alter their brainwave frequencies. 
and therefore bring about an altered state. Interesting. I just spoke with a woman who has designed, uh, she calls it the harmonic egg, uh, and it's for healing purposes, and, and it's light and color uh, and sound therapy, and one of the instruments that's piped in there uh, is the, the didgeridoo. I just wanted to, to come back to Star Wars for a moment, and I, because George Lucas, uh, as, as uh, Robert Watts points out in his foreword to the second edition of the ancient language of sa sacred sound, talks about George Lucas being immersed in Joseph Campbell and the power of myth and it just seems yeah. odd that he would have missed that and that you know he would have missed that when he constructed or when he wrote the Star Wars uh, trilogy I you know George Lucas is an extremely creative man and I personally started out by going to art school. I didn't go to university first. I went to art school because I wanted to widen my sense of the creative in terms of my approach to, to the, the phenomenal world, but also in my approach to the intellectualizing and understanding of that world. There's, there's too much to, to my mind, and it, it, this is a feeling that's become stronger as I've gone on. There's too much conditioning going on in our universities for us to think in particular ways, uh, where, whereby if you break out of the garden, you are suddenly an outsider and you are made to feel as such because you are thinking differently. It's a very, very dangerous thing that's happening. And you can see in today's world, there's this considerably growing anti-intellectual stance, this anti-academic view, brought about because of the lack of an ability to think freely. Now, with the creative person, such as George Lucas, you are overwhelmed by the need to be creative. You're overwhelmed by the need to express yourself in that way. And so you take another path. You take the, the mystical path of the creation. The hero in, in the myths worldwide is the one who brings down the knowledge. He draws it down from heaven in the shamanic state. And then he recreates it. So in other words, he is creating anew from the original creation. And that is what a creative person does. So in a sense, George can be forgiven because he's not about the retention of knowledge and being academic and saying, oh, by the way, I got this from that, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. He's put it down on paper. It's fluid and it's worked. It's been left to people like me to, to come up with the, ah, the, I see. You know, the, 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 the obvious links. Uh, which perhaps at the time were not so obvious. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, uh, in, in, I guess in some ways, George Lucas is the hero of his own, uh, his own, his own work. Um, so the thesis of your book, The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, The Acoustic Science of the Divine, religion is an ancient language of scientific expression. A scientific expression in what form? Sound resonance in terms of the way in which we marshal our consciousness in order to understand that which is around us. And this is the key point. I have a funny feeling that when we had actually uh, performed the original resonance experiments at sacred sites, we'd seen how sound wave patterns um, gathered on the machinery we'd looked at, particularly in cymatic form. Mm -hmm matched the decorations of the interior to the degree where we realized they weren't simply decorations, they were linguistic expressions. Now, what's interesting is that these sites, like the pyramids, we have Osiris, we have um, Quetzalcoatl at the uh, Central American pyramids, and so on and so forth. 
is that the hero is the essential aspect of the liturgy of these rites, of these places. Um, and it seemed to me that somehow the hero is intimately linked via his relationship with the Earth Mother and the Sky Father. And I, I suddenly realized, of course, that the great clue to this was in the opening of the Gospel of John. Um, whatever you think about Christianity, reading the opening chapter of St. John's Gospel is always worth, is always worth getting, getting nutrition from, spiritual nutrition. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's interesting because it's telling us that in the beginning there was a word, in other words, rhythmic vibration. And if you translate one word into Latin, you end up with the term universe. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, exactly. So what you have with the, the hero Jesus, the hero of the Christian religion, is a man who brings the word. In other words, I think that the Christian religion is harking back to a much more ancient time, I think it's harking back to the event on Mount Sinai where Moses comes down the mountain with the, the Ten Commandments. But hang on a minute. Hebrew wasn't said to have been invented at that time. Or was it? Who brought the language? It's always the hero in mm. the legends who brings the script. Well, he I... becomes the arbiter between God and his people, or the gods and their peoples. Right. So, I... you know, so... what we end up with is this phenomenon where at the sacred site, we've left the cave environment. We've now emerged into the open landscape of the world around us. And the first thing we do, if we don't build schools, banks, shops, or anything like that, we build the sacred site. Why? Because it's a telephone box to stay in touch with Mother Earth. <laughs> right, right. You know? If I could, go I on, just go. wanted to go back to cymatics because people may not be familiar with these experiments that you did and what cymatics are. So these sound wave patterns, I guess they vibrate a, a plate and uh, they arrange particles on the plate, like let's say sand. I've seen experiments conducted with fine grains of sand. And so they create this pattern. So what you're saying in, in these experiments, the sound waves generated inside these sacred sites, let's say a cathedral, uh, would would create patterns that also mirror, uh, I don't know, Celtic symbols or the the uh, the Hebrew alphabet. Exactly, precisely that. Um, you you basically, if you want to see sound in pictorial form, you take a, a drum with you, and um, as my friend John Reed uh, performed these experiments in the Great Pyramid uh, about twenty five years ago. Um, he uh, actually used the uh, sarcophagus in the king's chamber as the drum. He put a speaker into that, and then he covered the whole thing with a membrane and scattered it with very, very fine dust. Um, and then basically he threw the internal frequencies of the pyramid at that membrane. And hey presto, what do we get? We get hieroglyphics. It was astonishing. That is extraordinary. And what were you yeah. finding in Celtic uh, locations? Well, everybody's familiar with the Book of Kells and the fabulous Celtic knotwork of Celtic crosses. That's exactly what we got again. In India, we have the Om and that, that wonderful, you know, backwards three shape, etc. Uh, and so on and so forth. We've got the same phenomenon wherever you go. And it's always within the same band of frequencies or harmonics of those frequencies. So it seems to me that 
that uh, the the adoration of the hero in these legends is actually a an original mode of saying thanks to the the hero arbiter who brought this wisdom down to his people that they might use it for further communication and let's not forget that the great tragedy of the sacred site in many ways is that once language in its written form in script form has been discovered mankind begins to move away from the sacred site gradually you know it i mean obviously it's taken 5000 years so far but in earth's terms that's a fairly short period of time we've moved away from the site now because we've got our language we know how to leave a note for the milkman um thank you very much indeed right uh but but actually we need to start going back to these places and realizing that actually there's a there's a very subtle a very one might say emotional link between us and mother earth um who resonates at a particular frequency of vibration which is intimately linked to us and and our brain the human so, resonance exactly yeah 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 and you know it's incredibly important um and that's why i wonder about you know these ideas of going to mars and elsewhere we it seems to me we have so little understanding of the innate connection we have with our own planet that going to another planet seems to me to be almost like a um a future act of 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 corporate suicide because i'm not sure that astronauts are going to really survive too long without an understanding of the basic frequencies of those places i might be i might be wrong but it seems to me that as we've been nurtured within the embrace of mother earth perhaps we should take an aspect of that rhythmic vibration with us in order to actually insert ourselves onto the martian surface as we gradually get used to its own independent rhythm hmm uh i just wanted to come back to the human resonance for a moment because um the connection between the sh the human resonance, which is what between seven and ten hertz, I guess it fluctuates. It uh, fluctuates, yeah, yeah. And 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 the and human brain waves and the different the different levels, uh, the alpha and the beta and the theta brain waves. Just can we spend a few minutes talking about what that all means, the connection and how they interact? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's interesting. I've just written an article uh, on it. Actually, I mean. Basically, we go into a state of or a change of consciousness twice a day when you go into and come out of sleep. Because, of course, when you're going into sleep, your brain's relaxing. So therefore, it's rhythmically vibrating at a much slower rate. So what we have at the base level, the lowest of these bands is actually the delta rhythm, which is 0.5 to 4 hertz or vibrations per second. And this is you know, this, this is the state of deep sleep. This is where you're completely in the land of nod. Then the next band we have are theta waves, which are four and seven vibrations per second or hertz. And this is the state at which we're dreaming, we're, we're half awake, or you can be musing in a very deep state of meditation. And then the next band is the crucial band for what we're talking about. It's alpha rhythms which are seven to 13 hertz. And these are a state of passive alertness where the mind is, it's relaxed to the point of emptiness. Um, and this is the, the, the wave band that's associated with altered states of consciousness, the, the frequency of expanded awareness. Beyond that, as you, as you surge into the, 
into the day as you wake up, you then go into the fourth level, uh, which is the, the delta frequency, which is 13 to 30 hertz, which is the frequency of normal everyday uh, wakefulness. Um, and so what we have really is we have a harmonic connection uh, between the Earth's own frequency of 32 hertz and the fact that, uh, you know, we have the, the brain at between 7 and, and 13 hertz, generated around about 8, which is obviously a harmonic of 32, begins then to connect with, with Mother Earth, the point at which we begin to, 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 to draw down that wisdom in ancient times or today, where we begin to see that, that we're not only in an altered state, but we're in a state where we can actually solve problems. I mean, you, you've obviously heard that. Um, we've all heard that maxim that if you've got a problem, you sleep on it. Right, right. Yeah, inventors that, always talk about happens. inventors always talk about inventing it first in the dream state, in the dream world, and then the exactly. Invent, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, look at Medvedev when he had that dream, that, that profound dream in the late nineteenth century, and woke up the next morning with the entire periodic table, uh, you know, at his disposal. All he had to do was sit down and write it down, and thankfully he did. Uh, unlike uh, Coleridge, who was uh, only a third of the way through his great, great poem, Kubla Khan, only to see to actually have his state of awareness completely smashed by a knock on the door by the postman. Hmm. <laughs> what, what happens when we are separated from the natural background residence? Uh, you know, 5G, 4G, we're, we're swimming through this electronic smog, radio waves, and so forth. What happens, what is happening to us as we're, we're separated from that background residence? I think there's still a lot of, of, of um, research going on on that. But if we look at modern, the modern world and modern technology, what you're looking at really is, is, is quite, it's quite impactful. Before the world became electric, it, we had a generally good pattern of earth resonance and, and you could go to places and you would feel the numinosity. You, you still can. Um, but now, it's getting problematic because the world is so full of electricity and electro electromagnetic waves and and you know communication lines etc to the degree where if you look at the earth from outer space and the impact of all of this it's like the innards of a golf ball you've got elastic bands wounding wound around each other winding round and round and round the earth and it's kind of keeping in the earth's own natural rhythm it seems and so, of course, we get a lot of interference from that. We get it from our cell phones, what we carry in our pockets, or our, our laptops when we look at the screen. We get it from, you know, the, the power of our televisions. It's kind of creating a subtle change in us where we've become a lot more detached from our planet than perhaps is, is healthy. Um, and it seems to me that this is a part of the great environmental crisis that we're undergoing at the moment. We need to start switching off for a little bit, not permanently, for a little bit to get back in touch, not just with the earth, but ultimately with ourselves. Because if we do that, I think we'd be a far happier, more relaxed race. More of my conversation with David Elkington when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Do you grind your teeth at night? Well, that's not unusual. There are about 40 million Americans who do. We grind our teeth for a lot of reasons. We're stressed and anxious, or maybe because of an unusual bite. 
Teeth grinding will lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness, and expensive dental procedures. Sure, you could buy a custom-fitted night guard, but that'll set you back two or $300, and you'll grind through several of those every year. Instead, try Smile Brilliance Lab Direct Process, and you get the same custom-fitted night guard for as little as $45. That's right, $45 per guard. Smile Brilliant also has custom-fitted whitening trays and the Carry Pro electric toothbrush. Smile Brilliant. Take a moment and visit www.smilebrilliant.com and use Conspiracy at checkout to receive 30% off. 30% www.smilebrilliant.com and use Conspiracy at checkout. Smile fearlessly with Smile Brilliant. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. David Elkington, the author of The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, is here. Going back into these sacred sites and temples and churches, and I, I married a, a lovely Greek woman, so I'm uh, Orthodox, and during the Sunday liturgy we hear the, the chanting, the psaltis, we call them, or the psalters would be, the I guess, the, the equivalent in, the, in, in yeah. the Jewish religion. And then the Tibetan monks, of course, they have that wonderful throat singing we have, you know, Gregorian chants and so forth. What what is happening to our brain waves? Do we know when we're we're listening to this, and what is the purpose? I think the purpose of hymnal is again an unconscious one, in the sense that I don't think it was designed specifically uh, originally to get us into these states. It just is something that came naturally to us. Um, the further you go back in history, the more it becomes revelatory in linguistic terms. Today, you and I are speaking in conversation together, and we're speaking in, in a monotone way. Um, I'm sad to say this, but I'm Irish, but I don't have the beautiful lyrical Irish accent. I really wish I did, um, but it would be false of me to try and, uh, to, to try and um, copy it. Um, I was brought up largely in the UK, um, so I speak with a UK accent. But if we look at the Irish accent, it's actually a throwback to the deep and ancient past where people sang their language. Um, we have an extraordinary um, 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 uh, record, and I'll give, I'll give you the quote now. It's Enuma Elish Lanabu Shamanu. And this is the beginning of the great Mesopotamian story of creation. And it's the word shamanu that we should actually uh, look at, because, of course, from it we get our word shaman. And to translate, when on high the heavens were not yet named, we were singing creation into being. The gods were singing their words when they uttered them, uh, when they uttered the, the creation. So we, in terms of being created beings ourselves, emerged in an evolutionary way to sing language, to sing our thoughts. It's a well-known factor that if you're dyslexic, if you try to sing your way through a book when you're reading it, you're going to have a lot more success in, in getting through it than you would if you read it in just a, 
a monotone way as a series of words linked. The same with stutterers. There was the famous uh, country singer Mel Tillis, who was uh, a stutterer. But when he sang, not a hint of stuttering. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. And and then, you know, we, we can come forward. I, I know um, of a, a lady teacher um, who had a new class of very, very boisterous uh, 12 to 13-year-olds. Um, I write about it in the book, actually. And she was actually at her wit's end. These were a particularly boisterous year. And she was considering her career options, frankly. She simply could not get keep them under control. It was creating great tensions with her. She'd always been a very successful teacher. But one lunchtime, as they were out in the playground, she, she drove her car to uh, a local shop and she bought her lunch and she noticed some CDs and she thought she needed to relax. So she bought some Mozart, the clarinet quintets. She went back to her classroom. She put the CD into the CD player. She put her feet on her desk. She lounged back in her chair and she shut her eyes. At the end of the clarinet quintet, she looked up to see her class there at their desks, completely quiet. She hadn't even heard the bell go for the end of lunch. And this is an extraordinary phenomenon that happens on a regular basis with that particular piece of Mozart. You can quieten people. You can quieten those who are active, overactive. It's, it's an astonishing phenomenon. Mm. So, so music is this extraordinary link to our deep and ancient past, but also to that, that idea of what the earth truly is. It's an ex again, it's another expression of language. Right. We're all just one. All matter, I guess you could look at all matter as, uh, in terms of cymatics, right? If uh, the earth and, and, and human flesh and bone, it's all cymatics. It, it is indeed. Everything is rhythmic vibration. Um, if you uh, ever get asked to, to pose for an art class who want to draw you, that's, take it up. That's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about taking your clothes off. I'm merely saying talking about sitting there in front of a class, and you've got to do something which you will find really, really difficult, and that is to stay still. Mm. Right. You gradually relax into the pose. Now, I've done this uh, recently, actually. A friend of mine's a, uh, an artist, and I, I sat for his class. I wanted to do the portrait thing, so, um, and I sat there, and. You, re you relax into the pose. But gradually, as people concentrate on your face, they want to kind of draw your eyes. And so what you try to do is you try to still yourself completely. You get into a relaxed state, and gradually you will notice, as you, as you still your vision, it begins to disappear. As, you, as your muscle movements in your eyes, which are around about 40,000 movements per second, as they begin to still, the world as you know it begins to fade away. It begins to look like a snowstorm. That is what happens when you still the vibrations. Mm. Remarkable, remarkable. Now reverse that and look at the idea of God creating from out of nothing, the, 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 the creation, from out of no thing, the whole of everything. It's a fantastic uh, concept, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, this may sound like I'm going off on a bit of a what I call a tangerine or a tangent, but the <laughs> the, the idea of crop circles, um, 
is it possible that they are uh, a cymatic expression of the Earth's resonance? I mean, people are talking about, you know, crop circles are from UFOs or or some sort of light being. But is it possible that that's, that's what they are? There is, there's cymatics from the Earth's natural resonance. Yeah, I think that's very likely the case, to be honest with you. Um, I, I think also uh, other authors before me have brought this up um, uh, or about 20 odd years ago. The, the whole idea of crop circles, UFOs, etc. I mean, why do we call them unidentified flying objects when actually they should be UFSs? It's an under unidentified flying subject mm. because the whole thing is so subjective. True. Um, and what you have in the medieval period, we have engravings of this phenomenon known as, known as the mowing devil. Yes. And there we see him mowing in a crop circle type form. Now, it's interesting because, you know, we today would call uh, these strangers from outer space, to use a 50s term, we call them aliens. Now, interestingly enough, the word alien is actually an inversion of the 16th letter of the Hebrew, Greek, and Egyptian alphabets, which is called El Ayin, and it's the letter O in the modern, in the modern world. It's, it's shaped like a letter O. And its original intent was an expression of the pineal gland, which is in your forehead, mm -hmm. which, of course, if you stimulate, takes you into an, into an altered state. Right, right. So perhaps our aliens are actually the angels of our, of our unconscious. Perhaps the, these, these things that we see up in the sky are actually a reflection of consciousness. Uh, and, and what if, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a, a big maybe, but what if outer space is actually, you know, remembering what I've just said about posing for the artist, the vision disappearing. What if outer space, therefore, the cosmos, is a reflection, a physical reflection of our deep unconscious? Wow. <laughs> That's remarkable. I want to shift, shift gears here. I mean, we could go off and, and talk about that forever. Uh, I want to talk about water and yeah. the, the idea that water, uh, you know, can store information. What is, what, so what does that mean in terms of what we've been talking about uh, and sound and uh, the effectiveness of things like uh, the efficacy of holy water, the healing waters of Lourdes in France, the, you know, people make pilgrimages to the, the Ganges River. W can you? Is there any way we can tie that together? Yeah, I, I think that's 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 a, a really good point you've made there. Um, uh, we did some uh, some experiments uh, regarding wells. I I I I, um, I read a report uh, many years ago of uh, a well in the East Anglian part of of England, in which the water authorities had tested the well water from a holy well. Uh, the, the well of St. Ethelberger, I think it was. I think it was Ethelberger. It was one of the Ethels, anyway, a Saxon name. And they'd introduced bacterium into it. And the bacterium had actually done something quite remarkable. They took tap water from the local area, and they took river water from the local area, and they introduced the same bacilli into it, and it spread. It was, it was doubling every, every few seconds or so, and therefore it was thriving. But when they placed it into the holy water, it died. It was kaput. And it seems that holy well water 
comes from a, a range below the earth where it becomes very heavily um, intoxicated. It becomes very heavily um, influenced by radon emissions. Um, and therefore, it has this ability to be quite, I guess, sterile. And therefore, it is truly healing. I found this profound because, again, uh, we have this tradition in medieval uh, times of holy wells and their holy water. Ancient humanity seemed to know these things naturally. Where did they get the knowledge? How did it appear? Well, it's fairly obvious that they drew it down from somewhere. They drew it down from heaven, to use their own terminology. They drew it from somewhere. They drew it, I believe, from a deeper well of a, a collective consciousness, no doubt. Um, we need to do more, more research on this. But, you know, uh, I brought the first book out 20 years ago. I think it was around about 2005, 2006, that Masaru Emoto mm -hmm. brought out his remarkable series of books on the shape of water. And he was taking droplets of water and he was throwing emotional intent at it from from shouting at it to, to hating it, to loving it, to singing at it. And the shapes that were coming out when frozen were reflecting that emotional sense. Now, this was extraordinary because actually it's completely obvious that this should be the case. Uh, we were born within the embrace of our earth, and the earth mother is a very loving being. Why on earth would she bring us up in hate? There's, we, we wouldn't have survived. Uh, it seems to me that um, water, which is everywhere, I mean, it's 80% of the human body. If we were to take this knowledge and to, to, to treat with it properly, we could heal ourselves very effectively. You mentioned Mozart earlier, and I think it was the clarinet concerto, whether Emoto ever tried playing that piece and seeing the impact on the crystalline structure of water, or, or what the crystalline structure of water in a human looks like after being exposed to the clarinet concerto. That would be a fascinating thing to do. Perhaps we should get in touch with him and ask him to, to undertake that. Uh, I wouldn't do it myself because I wouldn't want to take away from his work, which I think is pretty amazing that you know you, you bring up another interesting um, aspect there of this research and that is that we live in a crystalline cosmos it is said that 10 to the power of minus 30 seconds after the Big Bang the universe was actually um, um, pyramidal in shape it was a it was um, um, the shape of the the expression of the shape has lost me I've lost I'm lost the word but however it was crystalline in shape. If we look at the platonic solids for the, the, the shapes of crystals, again, it seems to be a knowledge that he drew down from somewhere. It seems remarkable. We look at blood. Blood is liquid crystal. It's flowing through our veins. Mm. Water is crystalline. It's the only liquid that when we freeze it, it expands, um, which tells us an awful lot about it. Now, now, Take these crystalline forms and let's look at our, our ancient monuments, look at pyramids. Um, I noticed something really interesting. Well, certainly it was for me as well. Um, at the beginning of civilization, those who were living in the Mesopotamian basin by where the Euphrates and, um, and other rivers met the sea were having to survive in those marshlands and they were um, consuming 
dairy products from newly domesticated cattle. Um, yet the human body, uh, when it is very, very young, in the form of babies, cannot digest dairy solids. Right. So what ancient humanity did was to plant barley in those river delta regions. Barley is able to actually convert saltwater land into freshwater land, okay? Mm. And it takes salt out of the out of the environment. So salt again is in, incredibly important for the bodily system. You have to have enough salt in you right. to keep going. You've, it's, you know, it's a very fine balance. So so they were using barley water to actually break up the solids in the gut of the infants. We, we I, I remember myself being on barley water when I was a child back in the sixties. It's it's a remarkable thing. And barley is really interesting because uh, I remember recording a whistle from a field of barley in a field in Dorset about uh, 25 years ago. Um, if you look at barley, when it when it's ready to to actually be fertilised, it, it grows the whiskers, and then from the whiskers dangle the 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 the, the, the receptors for, for for pollen transmitting bees. But Barley is only fertile twice a day during that, that stage of, of its life. And that is in the evening and in the morning, i.e. alpha wave rhythms yet again. Mm. They resonate at, the, at those alpha, alpha frequencies, which again tells us about the hero. And the hero is quite often associated with barley. Ah, interesting. You see, great barley cakes were, were woven into the form of the uh, the hieroglyph of Osiris and left in front of the Great Pyramid at the end of the at the end of the harvest, so that the next season, when the the waters came and the rains came, they would begin to sprout anew. They would become green, and of course we have Osiris portrayed as a green man in in hieroglyphs because of course he's a god of fertility as well as a god of resurrection. But not only on on top of that, if we now go from barley to salt, take a salt crystal. Uh, don't get the flaked crystals, get salt crystals themselves. And if you buy a packet of them, buy one that, where you know that there are whole crystals and have a really good look at them. Look at them under a, under a, micro, uh, a microscope or a magnifying glass. Then take that salt crystal and compare it to the Pyramid of the Sun or the Pyramid of the Moon, the Teotihuacan in, in central Mexico. You've got one of the same thing. They're absolutely astonishingly similar. <laughs> and, and it's remarkable. Again, salt is associated with the coming of the hero. Quetzalcoatl was known to be a god of salt. He was a god who, who, you know, who helped in the trade of salt. Um, the Romans used salt as money. The word salary means literally salt. That's how they were paid because it was, it was quite a, a commodity in those days. So you can imagine worldwide salt was a very very precious substance hmm. <laughs> making some just phenomenal connections here uh you mentioned the pyramid uh what was happening inside the the uh the pyramids in ancient egypt w were they w was it an initiation rite going on what what was happening there well, the answer to that is we simply do not know. We don't have many records. Um, the, the few records we do have are very sparse and very fragmentary. But I think that if you're looking at it from uh, what I would call an obvious viewpoint, 
Um, the first thing you note about the Great Pyramid is that it's the only pyramid in Egypt where its inner chambers are actually above ground. All the rest have chambers that descend down into the ground, but none above. The Great Pyramid has a chamber going down below ground, but the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber, the Grand Gallery, they're all above ground. Um, and this is really very interesting indeed. Um, John uh, Reed wrote a, a paper on this uh, subject called Egyptian Sonics, uh, in which he posited the idea that uh, the Wayman Dixon brothers back in the 1880s discovered the so-called ascending shafts from the king's and queen's chambers. They actually uh, noted that um, the queen's chamber shafts had been closed I think closed. I know they'd been opened, and it was the king's chamber shafts that were were closed. It's it's one of the two. It's you know the other way around. However, what's what's curious about this is is the idea that you know in the sarcophagus you've got this extraordinary resonant frequency. I forget what the 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 actual frequency is. It's in the book, um, but it, it basically is the same frequency as the heartbeat of a newborn child. Hmm. So that tells you immediately the sarcophagus is actually it, it's surprisingly small. You're 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 talking about here if somebody was buried in that they, they were a, a, a really very short person, and yet you look at the 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 sarcophagus in the king's chamber, and to my mind it's a bit bit like Arthur C. Clarke's monolith in two thousand and one, a space odyssey. In fact, Clarke was inspired by the Great Pyramid. Uh, in, in designing that monolith for his story, which was originally pyramidal in shape. Hmm. Now, it's interesting because obviously the pharaohs of Egypt were incarnations of the god Horus, who was the son of Osiris. So the pattern is this. The old pharaoh dies. He goes from being Horus to turning into his father, Osiris. His son becomes the living Horus. So in other words, the son has to be reborn. And why not be reborn in the pyramid if that's what the you know the place was being built for? It seems to me hardly likely that the Egyptians, who were such an extraordinarily vibrant and celebratory people, not really obsessed with death, they were obsessed with life, actually. Um, the so-called Book of the Dead is actually called, in translation, accurate translation, the Book of Coming Forth by Day. So therefore, what we have is this celebration of life, so if Pharaoh is reborn, and this is actually um, uh, echoed in, in the, the pattern of the sarcophagus, then it, it's really curious that the, the, the ascending shafts in the queen's chamber are closed. It seems to me that they, they almost perform the, the task of fallopian tubes. It's almost as if they, they are kind of there to fertilize the cosmic egg, allowing the, the Pharaoh to be reborn. So we go back to my initial point. The whole of the pyramid was about a liturgy, a ritual, a mm. rite, the drawing down not only of new life, but also the drawing down of extraordinary knowledge. And that's why I, I say at the end of the book, I think it's in the last chapter, it might well be in um, the epilogue, I talk about the mermaid, um, because of course the word for pyramid in ancient Egyptian is mer. Um, and it is very curious that when the Wayman Dixon brothers made the breakthrough to finding the ascending shafts in the Queen's Chamber, 
they found a knife called the Peshen Kef knife. And if you look at it, it was it was designed for cutting the umbilicus of newborn children. Ah. And it's got a, a, a double blade that looks together, all together, like a, a mermaid's tail. So, of course, midwives were women. Women are the, right. the mothers of our children. They right. know what they're doing. Uh, and that was the ancient tradition. So, therefore... If they apply the Peshen Kef knife, then they are literally the maids of the myrrh, mm. mermaids. <laughs> and of course, the, you've got the great sea of the cosmos. They're also called in Greek legend sirens, which again implies sacred singing. Uh, and the whole idea of them dragging people down to their deaths, I suspect, is dragging people down to their spiritual deaths so they are reborn. Uh, this is all about sound and resonance yet again. Everything comes back to to acoustics, it all comes back to sound. And I believe that sound is the key to the world's mythology. We haven't taken it half as serious as, as we should do. The ancient language of sacred sound, the acoustic science of the divine. Uh, David, what a, an incredible uh, journey. Thank you so much for this. How do we get a copy of the second edition? It's uh, on sale from the 25th of April from Inner Traditions. And uh, if you approach them, I'm sure that they will be very happy to forward copies or to give you uh, 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 the outlets as to where it's going to be sold. David, a great, um, a great pleasure speaking with you. I hope we can do it again. Richard, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for having me on the show. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about the next edition of Conspiracy Unlimited. Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon 60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS60 organic oil. To order your miracle molecule ESS60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast, or go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. C 60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Coming up next time, the Sean Connery James Bond Canon Part 2. Pop culture historian Arlen Schumer examines the second of the Bond film franchise from Russia with Love. Armin Darris shot himself while they were still making from Russia with Love. You know, it does add this other weird dimension to the film. A poignancy also, because originally the producers were going to let him get out of the film. They thought, you know, don't you want to just, you know, go home, be with your family? He said, no, I want this film not only financially to support my family, but I want it to be my legacy. So that's when they came to the agreement of 
okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot all your scenes in Pinewood. And they must have picked up right then and there and went to Pinewood. And maybe they had to go back to Turkey and film. I don't know how that worked out. But the bottom line is they bent over backwards to help him. And he succeeded. He ended up filming all of the scenes, even though he was in pain, and ended up, you know, right after his last scene was shot, he went to Los Angeles and uh, killed himself in the hotel room. So, but he succeeded in giving us his legacy because when you watch From Us Your Love, he's a great character. And I mean, he has a couple of great scenes and, you know, he's a big part of the film. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.